Now hear God's holy word from Psalm 20. May Yahweh answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob defend you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and strengthen you out of Zion. May he remember all your offerings and accept your burnt sacrifice. May he grant you according to your heart's desire and fulfill all your purpose. We will rejoice in your salvation and in the name of our God, we will set up our banners. May Yahweh fulfill all your petitions. Now, I know that Yahweh saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of Yahweh our God. They have bowed down and fallen, but we have risen and stand upright. Save Yahweh. May the king answer us when we call. As far as the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Dear Father in heaven, we praise you for your holy word and we ask you to, with it, strengthen us today. Give us courage. Give us your Holy Spirit so that we might understand it rightly. Deliver us from all distraction and error, we pray. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our nearest kinsman. Amen. Amen. I've tried really hard over the past several months not to spend a lot of time on Sunday morning talking about the immense um, landfill fire that is our political uh, debate and and common conversation in our country over these past months. So because I don't want to I don't want to reinforce the idea that this is the most important thing ever in the history of the world, that, that God uh, somehow is, his work is hampered or hindered by what happens in this country in this year, right? We, we don't want to overemphasize it. But at the same time, I think, I think if I could make this observation as a, as, as a starting point to our study this morning, in this year, perhaps better than any other in my memory, and as far as my understanding of, of history goes, maybe for a long time, this year and this, this time, it seems that our nation has collectively opened their eyes and have become acutely aware of the weakness of the humans who desire power in government. People on both sides of the political spectrum are asking the question, is this the best we can do? Out of 320 million people in this nation, we get these two? Is this it? And we get the sense we could have done better if we just opened the phone book and thrown darts at it and just picked the names that that the darts hit. So since we have what we think are probably some of the worst possible, least qualified people ever to run for public office, and not only in the main two parties, but as a contrarian, typical third party guy, I'm not even happy. I mean, nobody's happy. There's not much anywhere. And, and, and in light of that, let's just think for a moment, what would make the perfect leader. Who are you looking for? What do you, what do you want uh, in, in, a, in a leader? What would you like to see? Well, if, if I had a chalkboard, we could write a bunch of words down. And I think honesty and integrity are pretty important. Those are probably things you would name. We want them to be able to carry through on promises and actually do what they say they're going to do. That's a big deal. But we, we also want them to do righteous things. So not just make evil promises and follow through on evil promises and say, well, that's, that's a sign of integrity. Boy, that's really good. No, you want them to act and rule righteously in wisdom with justice, 
righteousness is something that we want. Righteousness is an attribute exhibited by people who know what is right and know what is wrong. They can tell the difference. And they can tell the difference because they have an intimate knowledge of what God desires and what God expects and requires. So, so what do we want? We want someone who knows what God has said and is committed to following what God has said. That, that, that God's law is a standard. When it comes to wisdom, you want someone who can make the hard decisions, who has the courage and the boldness to think God's thoughts after him and to do things that not everybody's going to like, but you have to make a decision. And, and given the lay of the land, this is what is right. And I've got to make this call. And, and I'm, acting, I'm acting based on what I know that God has said. And, and someone who knows that truth is never up for election. So when it comes to justice and when it comes to uh, the, the, the moral fiber and the, the, the just character of the person that you want, Uh, to lead you. You want someone who can't be bought. You want someone who can't be bribed or blackmailed. Someone who isn't beholden to special interests. Someone who doesn't have a closet full of things that people can just pull out at any moment and hold over their head. Things that have never been dealt with the right way. Things that have never been repented of. Uh, There's been no reconciliation and no restoration um, there. We, we We don't want that. You want someone who is powerful enough to defend liberty to protect the innocent and to punish evildoers. You you don't want a warmonger, you don't want a despot, but you want someone who will swiftly execute judgment and confront evil with decisive consequences. Now, uh, you might add some other wonderful attributes to that, but but I think we all would agree 99.7999% on what we want and what we would pray for and what we would desire. But let's just say, let's put all that together and say that you knew of someone like that. We've, we've heard over and over and over this year, there are no perfect candidates, right? We, we got it. <laughs> yeah, we understand. <laughs> but let's say that you knew someone who was qualified in every way. Let's say they were exceptionally bright and good and honest, and just, and strong, and uncompromising when it comes to what is right. And let's just say for the fun of it, that this person was a friend of yours. You know, they, you, you knew them, and, and that they could actually get elected for a position of great fe- power. Now, I know that sounds, I know we're in fantasy science fiction territory when we're talking about a, a good and just holy person actually uh, being promoted to power, but stay, stay with me. I, I'm gonna. I'll, I'll stay with this illustration until it snaps. Um, uh, this person that you know so well actually actually gets inaugurated. Actually becomes a person of great power in government, and that person who you knew so well says to you, "You know what? I really value your insight. I value your wisdom and your clarity of thought, and and I and I value your compassion." So when you see something that needs to be changed, when you see something that needs to be set right, I want you to call me night or day. Here's my phone number. I will, I will pick up when you call. Well, you put all that together and boy, that would just be incredible, right? And if you did have a connection like that to someone in power and you saw something that needed to be set right, if you saw some injustice that they could clearly do something about, that they could clearly fix, and you didn't make that call, well, that would be criminal, wouldn't it? That, was, that, that would be on you. You would have no excuse. Well, some of you already had a step ahead of me, and you know where I'm going. This isn't a fantasy. 
What I just described, that's not a fiction. That's a reality. The Lord Jesus, your friend, your brother, the bridegroom of your people, the church, he's not just a mayor. He's not just a governor. He's not just a president. He is king over all of creation. He holds in his hand the power over all of the cosmos. And he expects to hear from you when you want something done, when you want something changed, when you see some injustice that needs to be corrected. The Lord Jesus is king over everything and he is a perfect ruler. He has never sinned and he never will sin. He's never had a moment of lust or rebellion. He is honest. He has never broken a single promise. He doesn't have a closet full of ugly, terrible things that somebody can bring out and show the world. He is just. All accounts will be settled by him in perfect equity. He is patient. He has, he has been sinned against repeatedly. He has been blasphemed and he's hated. And yet the world still turns and the sun still rises and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. He says, Jesus says, all authority is mine in heaven and on earth. That is all authority. He sets up kings and he establishes their rule. He brings them down and he knocks them off their thrones on his time. He blesses men with riches. He also sends poverty. In Colossians 1, Paul writes, of the Lord Jesus, this is what he says, he is before all things and in him all things consist. The Lord Jesus holds the world together by the power of his might. He holds every molecule in place. He puts breath in your lungs and food on your fork and shoes on your feet. The only reason you have anything ever is because he has given it to you in his love and compassion and his sovereign rule over all things. That's, that's the Lord Jesus. No bird in the deepest recesses of the jungle ever falls to the earth, but that he wills it. No hair on your head turns from brown to white or blonde to white without him ordaining it. And there is not one inch anywhere in the entire cosmos over which he does not rule. All of creation exists to glorify his name. Now this is true. And he has invited his people to talk to him about how he is ruling. Now, now we hear that and we say, okay, wait a minute. I get that. Jesus is king. But you try to tell that to some people and they're going to respond. Well, if he's ruling over everything... He's doing a really poor job of it. I mean, have you read the newspaper? Have you looked at the internet? Have you, have you watched CNN? You know, there's hunger in the world. Children are being abused. Women are mistreated. Innocent people are killed every day, tortured and oppressed. Wild men do horribly wicked things in the world and they're allowed to do it. Sometimes it looks as if no one is in charge at all. And you say Jesus is king over everything. Well, there's so many things we can say in response to this, and I will get to many of these things today, but, but one important observation is that the same people who ask out of one side of their mouth, why isn't Jesus doing anything? Why isn't Jesus doing anything? Out of the other side of their mouth, they criticize the Lord God for the way he does act in history, right? They're, they're unsatisfied. They don't like the way he dealt with the Canaanites. They don't like the flood. They don't like how he dealt with Sodom and Gomorrah. You see, out of one side, why isn't he doing anything? Well, 
Well, not like that. That's, that's not what I want. That's not what I'm asking for. But you see, for God to act in the world, for him to bring an end to injustice, for him to stop the evildoers, for him to be effective and decisive about ISIS and North Korea and Hollywood and Wall Street and Washington, D.C., among many other things, it means that he's going to have to pour out his wrath on evildoers. And the fact that he hasn't done that yet, as far as we can see openly, it seems that he's exercising his patience as he did in the days before the flood. Remember, as he did in the days before Sodom and Gomorrah, when he uh, wrestles with Abraham about how many righteous people are in Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, or the way that he gave the Canaanites time. Remember how God told Abram? He said, I'm going to give you this land, but I'm going to wait a few generations before I give it to you. Why? What's the reason? Because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And God gave him 400 more years to straighten it up or, or be destroyed. So from the record of history, while we see these big, uh, enormous, these, these huge, uh, decisive acts of God against the wicked and evildoers... Before that comes a time of patience. So it appears that God gives men plenty of time to go their own way. He he gives them time to try out their destructive plans and see them all the way to the finish. So that when they're judged, they don't have this excuse. Well, I didn't have time to, to get to the end of what I was trying to do. No, he allows them to go for generation after generation. You can't say you were cut off too soon. So God says, no, go ahead, work it all the way out. You, you try that and you see where that's going to take you. No, go ahead. Don't listen to me. <laughs> Don't follow my law that, you know, is perfect and holy and right and just. That's fine. Go the way of death and see where that leads you and your family and your community and your nation and the world. Go, try it out. And what happens is that eventually evildoers and the wicked expose themselves for what they really are. They appear so compassionate. They, they appear so erudite. They appear so academic and scholarly uh, when, you know, when, they, when, they, when they spout their filth and their garbage. Okay, well, I want, you, I want to see what you really are. And God allows it to work itself out so that the world and so that history sees everything that God is defeating and everything that God is judging. So, so why hasn't he acted yet? Well, uh, one answer to that is that he's storing up his wrath for the day of judgment. That's one answer. Another answer to that is because our ways, the ways of his people, the ways of the people who are called by his name, our ways don't please him. So when we pray for judgment, that's actually a self-condemning prayer. If God's judgment is barreling down on uh, wickedness, like a freight train barrels down the tracks, we're standing on the tracks. And if we're asking for God's judgment, we've got to get off the tracks first. All indicators and all meters show that by and large, Christians in this country have their hearts consumed with the love of the world and the world's pleasures. Christians are just as likely as non-Christians to consume illicit, explicit material. Just as likely. There's no difference in the the rates of the consumption of of filthy material between Christian men and non-Christian men. That's just over and over and over. You read the studies, there's no difference. 
In fact, in the South, in the Bible Belt, there's an uptick. It's, it's more. Christians and non-Christians are just as likely to live together and fornicate before marriage. There's no difference. There's, there's simply no difference between the way Christian uh, young people behave and non-Christian young people behave. According to a study by CareNet, a pro-life resource center, s- said that self-identified Christians are more likely to get an abortion. Christians who call themselves, people who call themselves Christians are more likely to get an abortion. 70% self-identify as Christians. 43% said they attended church at least once a month. We're no different. Why isn't God changing and moving and doing something in the world? It's because his, the, the ways of his people don't please him. Why would he defend us? Why would he, why would he stop anything? Why would he change anything? We, we, our ways don't please him. So if the church in this country were to get serious about praying for judgment, we would need to first check with our property insurance providers to see if we're covered for brimstone before we pray those prayers. Judgment begins at the house of God. Proverbs 28 says, One who turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Perhaps the main reason that Jesus is not actively changing the parts of the world that we care most about is because we who say that we love his law are not asking him to change the world. Uh, Now, there are all kinds of amazing, wonderful things going on in parts of the world that we don't pay attention to. Uh, The church is alive, and it's growing below the equator. Muslims are being converted to the Lord Jesus in historically unprecedented numbers. But here, in this part of the world, we are so blessed, blessed beyond imagination. We have these perverted, warped affections, and we harbor these idolatries. We live in constant fear. We're overcome with anxiety, and we don't call upon the name of the Lord in distress. We have not because we ask not. So, so the Lord is storing up his wrath, yes, for the day of judgment. That's certainly true. Our ways do not please him. And he says, if a man's ways please the Lord, even his enemies will be at rest with, with him. So we're not, we're not pleasing to the Lord. And we're, we're not calling on his name collectively as a, as a church, as a people. But as we've seen over these past couple of weeks, God has given us the Psalms as prayers and hymns that he wants to hear. He desires that we talk to him and he gives us the the Psalms to give shape to those prayers and to give shape to those desires and those wishes and those supplications. He desires that we talk to him and he gives us these to pray and sing when we see evil men oppressing and persecuting the innocent. He gives us many of these Psalms to sing as we saw last week, when we're confused and we're hurting. And then he gives us psalms to sing and pray when we're happy and joyful and triumphant and recognize that uh, no matter what is happening, the Lord God is king over all the earth. And these psalms remind us that he is in control and that he is good. You see, both things. He is in control, yes, but he is also he is also good. So he's given us these songs of triumph and victory of the, of, of the Lord Jesus, of King Jesus, to keep before us his rule, to remind us constantly of who is in command. So this particular psalm that we read just a few minutes ago first reassures us that God is near and he is ready to deliver. And because I'm, I'm covering these kinds of this genre of psalms uh, generally, um, 
I'm not going to do tight exegesis of, of this psalm. There are many things I'd love to dig into, many phrases here. But, but the purpose of this study is to call us to the world of the psalms and to whet our appetites for this kind of language and this kind of prayer. So looking back at the psalm that I read at the beginning, Psalm 20. May Yahweh answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob defend you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and strengthen you out of Zion. May he remember all your offerings and accept your burnt sacrifice. He invokes the covenant name of God right from the start. And this psalm begins in the form of a benediction. It's a blessing. It's a, it's a prayer that, that reinforces and establishes the kind of God that we call out to, the kind of God that we pray to. And so we read, he is there to answer you. He is there to defend you. He is there to send you help and strengthen you. But the way that he's designed the world and the way that he set things up is that he wants you to ask him for these things. Now, he gives us many things that we don't ask for. He protects us from dangers that we, we don't even know are dangers. There are, how, how often have, have you looked back and said, wow, that, that was close. Boy, boy, that, that could have taken us out. <laughs> you know, that, that, that was dangerous. And you didn't know about it until it was, it was over with. So, so, yes, he offers his protection, but, but he also wants you to ask him. He wants you to offer him the sacrifice of prayer. He has established prayer as the means by which his people call on him to act. In our baptisms, God has ordained all of us as priests. And as priests, he uh, has called us to stand before him and petition him, not only on behalf of ourselves, but we're standing in the breach, standing in the gap on behalf of the world, worshiping on behalf of the world. So when we pray, we don't pray only for ourselves. We pray for the whole world. And it's essential that we gather to pray for God to move and change the world because we know that that things happen when God's people get together and pray. Now, certainly you pray on your own. Absolutely. But when God's people lift up prayers together, you see God move and respond. In Acts 4, Remember, Peter and John were being persecuted by the chief priests and the elders of the temple. And then the church gathers. And when they gather, they raise their voice to God with one accord. How do you, how do you raise your voice to God with one accord? How do you pray all the same thing at the same time? Either the Holy Spirit wonderfully, miraculously helps you to all pray the same thing together at the same time, or you have a psalm that you've memorized, which you can all pray together at the same time, or some other text that you pray together all at the same time. But the picture there is that everyone was speaking at the same time, praying the same thing, not praying different things. They were praying the same thing at the same time so that what they were saying could be recorded by Luke. And he wrote down their prayer. Someone had to lead them, and it had to be determined ahead of time what they were going to pray. Uh, But they pray together, and they use Psalm 2. Luke writes down a part of Psalm 2 there in Acts chapter 4. And when they prayed together, remember, Luke writes, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. God's people pray. They pray with one accord. They all pray the same thing in a time of deep distress and persecution. And the Holy Spirit responds by filling them and shaking the earth. God responds 
and acts on creation when his people gather together to principally sing the Psalms, but to pray together in one accord, to pray together the same thing. In Matthew 21, when Jesus is talking about prayer, Jesus says, if you say to this mountain, be removed and it will be cast into the sea. If you say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. Whatever things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. That's the plural you there, by the way. In the old King James, in the old King James, it's ye. In proper English, it's y'all, right? If, and so what Jesus says, let me translate it for you. Uh, if y'all say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. And whatever things y'all ask in prayer, believing y'all will receive. Uh, Jesus is not making a promise to individuals necessarily. It's a promise to the church. It is a promise that when y'all pray together, when ye pray together in unified prayer and prayer that's offered in worship, that's the prayer that moves mountains. As a sidebar, um, that sample prayer about the mountain was not some silly request to kind of rearrange the topography of Israel. Like, uh, I don't like Pikes Peak there. I want it somewhere in Iowa. And so if we all get together and pray for that, God will move it. That's not, uh, that's not the kind of prayer he's talking about. When Jesus said this, they were on their way to Jerusalem and they were on their way to the temple when he said, this mountain. He's speaking about a specific mountain, this mountain, and this mountain was the mountain they were headed up, the mountain that Jerusalem set upon where the temple mound was. He's going, Jesus is going there to do battle with what's happening on that mountain, that city, that, that temple that's there. He's going there to do battle with that mountain, and he knew that that mountain is about to be a cause of great distress and persecution for the church. So Jesus says, when you pray for this mountain to be removed and cast into the sea, they knew what he meant, that, that this mountain is going to stop its persecution. And eventually that does happen, right? They pray, and in AD 70, that mountain is cast into the Gentiles, into the sea. It's, it's, it's taken apart, it's dissembled, and it's scattered uh, to the four winds. Uh, in Revelation 8, I just want to look at one, uh, a couple more things here. In Revelation 8, we see the prayers of the saints go up to God's throne. And as I said earlier this morning on this uh, Sunday before All Saints Day, we remember that, that we have this whole host of loved ones and saints and martyrs gathered before God's throne. And our saints go up and join their prayers. In Revelation 8, we see this, the prayers of the saints go up to God's throne as smoke and incense. And then the angel, the angel pours out fire on the earth. Our prayers go up as incense in Revelation 8. And then the angel takes a censer full of fire and pours it out on the earth. And then in verse 8 of Revelation 8, we see a mountain cast into the sea. Well, that's a callback to Jesus' prayer in Matthew 21. But the point of this is when, when the church prays together, God responds. What we're doing in prayer is, God, we want you to reorder the world according to what you have said you're going to do, according to the vision you have put in our hearts, according to the things you have taught us and that we have received. We want you to act on the earth. And when we pray together for the same thing, we're asking, Lord, shake up the earth, reform it, revive it, and reorder it. One, one more place on this in, in 1 John 5. Now, this is the confidence that we have in him. 
that we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, again the plural. If we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we asked of him. These, these promises are primarily focused on God answering the collective prayers of his people, the prayers that are in agreement, the prayers that find cohesiveness in the Psalter primarily. On my own, I could ask for something really corny and really goofy all by myself. If I just, you know, went to a, a mountain uh, for a year and just had my own reflections on what I think, I could get some really crazy, goofy theology out of that. And I could pray some nutty thing. God hasn't promised to answer that prayer. What he has promised to answer are the prayers of his people together, collectively. And then when he does that... <clears throat> He moves mountains. He changes and reshapes the world. And that's what he's promised to do. That's what we hear in Psalm 20. But if we continue in verse 4, may he grant you according to your heart's desire and fulfill all your purpose. We rejoice in your salvation. In the name of our God, we will set up our banners. May Yahweh fulfill all your petitions. The psalmist has confidence in a God who grants, listen to this language, grants the desires of the human heart, who fulfills your purposes, who answers your petitions. Throughout the Bible, God invites his prophets to speak to him, and he invites them to express their desires before he acts. Uh, one, one place that I always love to look at is Amos, Amos 3 and then Amos 7. God consults his counselors and then he moves, but he wants to hear a great, a great place to, to see this. Amos 3, 7 says, surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. What does God do before he reveals his plan to his prophets? Nothing. He, he brings his prophets into his council. And in chapter seven, we actually see him do this. So for Amos writing here, thus the Lord God showed me, behold, he formed locust swarms at the beginning of the late crop. Indeed, it was the late crop after the king's mowings. And so it was when they finished eating the grass of the land. I said, O Lord God, forgive, I pray. Oh, that Jacob may stand for he is small. So Yahweh relented concerning this. It shall not be, says Yahweh. So, so Yahweh sends a locust swarm and, and prophet says, God, you know what, this, this is bad. This is a bad idea right now. And you know what the Lord does? He withdraws the locust swarm. And then verse four, thus the Lord God showed me, behold, the Lord God called for conflict by fire and it consumed the great deep and devoured the territory. Then I said, oh Lord God, cease, I pray. Oh, that Jacob may stand for he is small. So Yahweh relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. God calls on his prophets to talk to him about what he's doing in the world. And he has promised to listen. And he has showed us over and over that he listens to his people when they call. In Genesis 18, God says, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm doing? Since Abraham surely shall become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. And the answer is no, I won't hide from Abraham. Listen to the way that that God talked to Moses and how Moses stood up for the people of Israel and said, Lord, kill me, but don't, don't kill them. Take me out, but don't destroy them. God brings his prophets up into the fellowship of his triune Godhead, and he establishes them as junior partners in his heavenly council. He brings them up and he listens to them. 
So not only this, that thing I said in the beginning about your righteous friend in power, you have a righteous friend in power. He's in charge of everything and he wants to hear from you. And he is deeply interested in what you think is going on in the world. And then lastly in this, in this Psalm, Psalm 20, the, the last little bit. Um, I should have kept my finger in there. Get back to it. <laughs> okay, Psalm, Psalm 20, uh, verse 6. Now I know that Yahweh saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we will remember the name of Yahweh our God. They have bowed down and fallen, but we have risen and stand upright. Save Yahweh. May the king answer us when we call. We are apt to cast around and look for any sign anywhere that will tell us that things are going to be okay. Any barometer, any forecast, any prognosticator that can pat our head and let us know, yeah, nothing substantial is going to change in the world if we keep marching down the path that we're on. You're going to have your smartphone. You're going to have your DVR. You're going to have a solid internet, reliable internet connection. That's never going to go away. You're going to have reliable electricity. It's going to always be easy for you to go to the store and get food. And when you pull up to the gas pump, there will always be unleaded in the 87 and the 90 and the 93 and the E15 and the diesel. It'll always be there. You just pull up and you, you get it. Unlimited supply. Everything's okay and you don't have to suffer or do without, or you don't have to experience want or lack of discomfort. And we say, well, sign me up. I'm willing to do anything as long as I can maintain how things are going right now. So I put my trust in those forces that are hard at work to convince me that they are in control. I trust in horses and chariots, the protectors, the human messiahs, human saviors and deliverers. Politics, economics, education, marketing, medicine, media. These are the gods we cry out to. These are our defenses and our weapons. We say that these are our only hope. Yeah, I get, get God's in control. I hear about that Sunday morning, but I, after I leave there, I just kind of check out on that and get back to the real world where things run, you know, in reality, the real way. We forget that when God decides to move and act, that those things that we count on, in fact, are actually powerless. They can't deliver us when he decides to shake things up. Our only true hope and refuge is in him alone. And he has not given us chariots and horses. He has given us different weapons for our warfare. Uh, If you're following along, just quickly flip to Psalm 144. He has trained us to fight a different way, using different methods and means. Psalm 144 said, Blessed be Yahweh my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. What, what kind of war and what kind of battle are you, are you fighting with your fingers? Well, we read a little bit further in that psalm and we see in verse 9, I will sing a new song to you, O God. On a harp of ten strings, I will sing praises to you. So you start out the psalm singing, yeah, he's going to train my fingers for battle. You know, I, karate or whatever. And then we get to verse 9 and say, oh, wait, how are, we, how are we battling? We're playing. We're playing. We're playing. We're playing. You know, we're, that's, how, that's how our hands are trained for battle. And we think of Psalm 137 um, when uh, by, the, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, yea, we wept. When we remembered Zion, we hung our harps upon the willows in the midst of it. Um, 
If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. If I do not remember you, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. Our hands being trained for battle is training for worship. It's training for musical worship. It's training for psalter worship. Psalo means to pluck, to pluck a string, to pluck a harp, to pluck an instrument. So these psalms are the secret weapons that God has given the church for her to use in her conquest. And if we would but regularly, faithfully deploy our secret weapons that he's given us, the world would change dramatically. And that's what I've been driving at these past few weeks. And I know you feel like, oh, we're, you're preaching to the converted. We sing psalms and we got it. Well, we, we haven't even begun to look these past few weeks in the categories of the Psalms. We barely scratched the surface, but my, my call to you is to, is to come ahead and enter even further into the world of the Psalter, to allow it to shape our thoughts and our perspectives on, on the world. We get, we get so much noise and we get so much garbage and we get so much upside down stuff and we need to come back to God's hymn book, God's ordained spirit-inspired prayer book to allow it to shape us. They remind us of who really is in command, that all of the wicked powers of the earth are just a sham. The Psalms remind us that The powers of earth are stand-ins. They're usurpers. Don't fear them. Don't fear what they might do. Rather, stand up to them with the language of the Psalms. With faith in the one who sits on the throne and pray that he would defeat the usurpers and bring an end to their wickedness. Just as Israel was a kingdom of priests who stood as mediators, bringing their sacrifices to God on behalf of a world that would not and could not present their own sacrifices, so the church today worships on behalf of others. The the world of the old covenant was estranged from God and did not know how to pray, so the priests and the nation of Israel were to pray and to worship not only for themselves, but for those who could not and would not. So we today bring the sacrifices of prayer and worship and song to God's altar on behalf of others who are not there. Praying for all the people who don't know how to pray, representing them before the throne of God, just as the high priest appeared before the presence of God in the throne room in the Holy of Holies. So that's our calling. That's our role. And given this invitation and opportunity that the church has been granted, again, I ask and I I want us to keep this before our minds. What kind of prayers ought God's people to be praying? And what kind of songs ought we to sing? How do we pray for our brothers and sisters suffering in difficult, heartbreaking situations around the, around the globe? Christian women and girls are being abused and misused by Muslim oppressors. Christian men and boys are being killed. Parents are put to death in front of their children and children are forced into slavery. Their property is being plundered and their places of worship are being destroyed. What are we going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? Let me, let me, I I think I said finally already one time and I'm going to say finally now for the last time. In, In Luke 18, in Luke 18, Jesus gives a parable as an example of what God expects of us. Jesus says, in a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. And for some time, 
the judge refused. But finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps coming to me, this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. And then Jesus commands, um, well, he, he, he comments on his own parable and he says, listen to what the unjust judge says. Will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on the earth? The widow relentlessly presented herself before an unjust judge pleading for justice and for the quelling of the adversary. The judge heard her and delivered her. If that is the way an unjust judge responds, how will the just judge, your friend in power, the Lord Jesus, how will he respond to his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? We want programs We want strategies, we want methodologies, we want seven steps to a better life. Jesus gives us the Psalms. And my aim and prayer is that we would grow cold and indifferent to things that don't work, the things that are not God-ordained. They're not God's means or methodologies or programs. That we grow cold and indifferent to all these idols and that we would be passionate and zealous for our true weapons of war. We need songs that will change the world, that when we come singing them into God's presence, that he will hear and he will shake the earth. Other songs can be good and they serve a purpose in worship, but only only the Psalms call on God to move in such a way that he changes men and nations, that he destroys the oppressors and delivers his people. Uh, And so I, I, I call you to, with me, approach and enter and absorb the world of the Psalms. Let them get inside of you. That little little story I told last week about the uh, ordination candidate who was asked, wouldn't that be some kind of challenge? Could you do that? Could you you set that as a goal, maybe coming around 2017 and saying, 2017, you know what I'm going to do by the end of the year? I'm going to know something about all 150 Psalms. I'm going to know them so well that if you ask me, what's Psalm uh, 114 about? I know it. I know what that one's about. 49, 26. I know it. I can tell you what that psalm is about. Uh, and and I, I, I challenge you, uh, give it some thought that, that we together as a people would, would embrace the hymn book, the prayer book that God has given us even more. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, um, we ask you to grow us in strength and grow us in faithfulness. We ask you to continually call us to obedience by your Holy Spirit. And we do pray that not only this congregation, but your church would, would lay aside their follies, that they would lay aside uh, their silliness, that they would lay aside their idols, that they would lay aside wickedness and rebellion and would seek your face and do it the way that you have prescribed. So Father, grant your church this. We pray on behalf of our brothers and sisters in the church that they would, uh, that, that they would call upon you and follow the way that you have set for us. Oh, Father, uh, we ask you to call your people to obedience and repentance, and we lift up these prayers in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.